friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. Play a little song this morning for you guys. <laughs> so happy to play with Prince Tuesday. Very obviously after that, we'll go to Psalm 13.1. So from Psalm 13 uh, through 1 through 6. How long, Lord, will you continue to ignore me? How long will you pay no attention to me? How long must I worry and suffer in broad daylight? How long will my enemy gloat over me? Look at me. Answer me, O Lord, my God, revive me, or else I will die. And my enemy will say, I have defeated him, and then my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I trust in your faithfulness. May I rejoice because of your deliverance. I will sing praises to the Lord when he vindicates me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word, Uh, and by knowing it, but we get to somehow know you better. And that results in so much good for us and better worship and better love. So would you allow my words this morning to be beautiful, true, and right, and honoring of you. Has this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Can you all hear me? Okay, I just saw Robert moving and didn't know it was me. Uh, you heard Daniel the tiger. He says, sometimes you can feel two feelings at the same time, and that's Okay. And I will tell you, in fact, it's more than okay. It's probably what it means to be truly human, to feel two things at the same time. We know what this means. Like Daniel the Tiger is not teaching kids something that they don't know. He's pointing to a reality that we all experience. And I think we forget it as adults sometimes. Like I think kids know this. And yet, though, as adults, we know what it means to be happy and sorrowful at the same time. We've done this. You can hold joy and envy at the same time. Parents, you know what it's like to look at your children with great delight and then suddenly there's this like pinch of pain because you see the clock ticking down and you know only a couple more years till they're out of the house. A couple more years and then it's just me and him. You hold those feelings at the same time. Single friends, we know what it's like to have a friend get engaged and we are genuinely joyful. Like we show up and we genuinely are happy for them. And then we are genuinely asking God, when's it my turn? And we feel those things at the same time. And we know because we love our friend, we are truly so happy for them. And yet we know we're a little sad 
We're a little envious. To be fully human means to be able to be ambivalent, to be able to feel two things at the same time. We know what it's like to laugh so hard at something and then tears fall down our face because we think someone should be in that room with us. We lost someone or we missed someone. And they would have thought that was the funniest joke. Or that's the joke they used to make. And so Daniel the Tiger is singing this song, but somehow along the way, I think, because I was raised up in the Christian church, somewhere along the way, parts of the Christian church decided that it was only triumph and victory were the most faithful ways to show up in the world. I have seven friends. We've all grown up together. We spent our 20s together, and we are all in counseling. So we're doing much better in our 30s. And the thing that we laugh at is we have all been given a feelings chart. And if you're not familiar with counseling or a feelings chart, it's a very faithful tool that when you show up, your counselor says, and how does that make you feel, right? That's the old trope. But you know what? As adults, we're not good at naming our feelings. We know the happy ones, but we don't know the rest of it. And so there's like a whole circle, and they're color-coded. And sometimes you're like, how do I feel? Forlorn. <laughs> what does forlorn mean? No, but you know it's in the way, right? And so sometimes... We grow up in Christian circles where just one part of that wedge is what we call faithfulness, and the rest of it we say, oh, no, 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 it's okay because God's in control. Don't worry about being unhappy because God wins in the end. Don't worry about grief because you'll see them again. And yet we know from experience that the Christian life is not all confetti and jubilee. Sometimes we know it's sorrow and suffering. Austin talked about the Royal Tenenbaums. Many of you can relate to what he talked about what he talked about. I recently, many of you know this, spoke at a friend's son's funeral, one of my best friends in the whole world. Just her 18-month-old boy just died. They, they still don't know why. She put him to bed one night and he never woke up. And it was the greatest honor of my life to be asked to speak at the funeral. And we were at a complimentarian church, so I had to give words of comfort. And, and I remember even just that, like this idea that I was giving the homily, but we had to call it words of comfort. And I'm like, how do you comfort someone who just lost their 18-month-old boy? And it's one of the hardest things I've ever done as a pastor. Like seminary does not prepare you to speak at a funeral of an 18-month-old boy. It might prepare you to speak at a funeral of a child, but not your friend's kid. I just remember the whole week, I'm like, what do I, what do I say? How can I comfort someone who's going through this? And the Lord was incredibly gracious to me, but I remember I came to my roommate, Alex, and I said, I know this is so unfair to you. You're going to have to endure this twice, but I need you to listen to the message today before I give it tomorrow because I'm so insecure about it. And this will not come as a shock to you all. I'm rarely insecure. I usually feel good about what I'm going to say. And I had spent all week just saying, what do I say in this moment? And I asked Alex, I said, is this okay? And I, and I gave the message, and she said, Nikes, you're never going to be comfortable with what you're saying at an 18-month-old funeral. You're never going to feel good about it, but that's exactly what you need to say. And my only goal was to comfort my friends. I just thought of Julie and Heath the whole time. What would comfort and care and honor my friends and honor their boy? And that's all I wanted to, to do. I didn't care about anyone else who was there at the funeral. But a really strange thing happened afterwards, and it really honestly surprised me, is I gave the message, and afterwards, people were flocking to me to tell me about their own experience of grief, loss, pain, and heartache. And they told me they had never been given permission to feel the things that they had been feeling. So I heard of people's kiddos who had traumatic brain injuries and now I have not been restored. I heard of people who said, I lost my dad two years ago and I have yet to cry because I was told it's okay, I'll see him again. 
And I, and I was told of people who've lost their children and were told, it's okay, they're with Jesus, it's better. And they just kept saying, like, this, it never felt right. And one woman messaged me and said, I wish you would have been at my kid's funeral. And I, I walked away from that. And I talked, Martin was such a good friend. He came, he didn't know my friends, but he wanted to come and support me. And I, I talked to him about this. And my phone was filling up with messages. And I just said, you know, Mart, this is, this is bananas to me. That we live in a world that has told so many people when they've gone through traumatic loss, there's just one part of the wedge that's faithful. It's the happy side. One pastor in particular asked me, he said, where did you learn this truth that you could feel two feelings at the same time? What book did you read? Which is a question pastors ask. I ask it all the time. And I just said to him, I said, you know, I learned this by going through my own sorrow and suffering. And I ripped off Daniel the tiger. So that, that's how I learned this. So Mart, being the man that he is, said, you should share the message with St. Jude. And I said, you want me to give a funeral message to St. Jude on a Sunday in an art series? And he said, yeah, and I'll be in Tennessee. Good luck. So, <laughs> so that's what we're doing this morning, guys. I am going to share with you some of what I shared at that funeral because it surprised me by how much people needed to hear that. And so this is what I told my friends. I said, look, there are times in our life when we read scripture and we know it. And then there are times in our life when we go through something that suddenly when we read that scripture, it moves from our head to now our guts and our hearts. There, there are times in our life when we read, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Like, got it. And then you meet the one and you're like, oh, love. Now I get it, right? And so there are times in our life that experience transfers knowledge from our heads to our guts and our heart. And so when you lose someone you love, what happens is you finally begin to understand in your gut, in your innermost parts, what it means when the scripture tells us that death is an enemy. Suddenly you don't just know that, you know that. And when harm is done to those you love, you know what it means when the scripture says that there is an enemy who stalks around seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And suddenly we go, yep, there's an enemy in this world. An enemy did that to the person I love. The enemy of death took the one that I love. And because we're frail, sometimes in life we try to make nice with the enemies of God. Right? Sometimes because we're hurting, we will minimize the impact of death. Or we'll reach for silver linings in devastation. Like, I remember when I was in, in the eighth grade, a massive tornado came through my neighborhood and took out the whole neighborhood. It was awful. I had to live in a hotel for a month. I was so sad. I lost a teacher. That meant a lot to me. And I just remember this church group came in and said, don't worry, you'll all get bigger homes. And I was like, what? That's not hopeful. And even at 14, I knew then that was not going to help me in my grief. There are times that when we try to make nice with the enemies of God, then we come up against an 18-month-old boy dying, and we realize we're not going to make nice with that. We're going to call it what it is. It's an enemy of God. It's an enemy of life. And there are times when death and devastation, it just takes our breath away, and it knocks us to our knees. And you can't bring yourself to say, it's okay. They're not suffering now. You'll see them again. Like, we know that those words ring hollow sometimes. Many of us in this room know what it means to rage against death, disease, and violence. And I want to remind you that it's good to rage against those enemies. 
We're not meant to make nice with the enemies of God. You are not meant to make nice with the enemies of God. Death is not our friend. It is an enemy. Evil is not our friend. It is our enemy. Disease and destruction and decay, they are not our friends. They are our enemies. And in those moments when we declare that this is not as it should be and we cry out that we hate that enemy, all we're doing is agreeing with God. That's what that means. And there's a word for that. There's a word for crying out to God and saying this is not as it should be. And that word is called lament. We have a word for that in our faith tradition. It's called lament. God in his infinite kindness, goodness, and wisdom, he preserved for people a book of prayers. He said, look, there are going to be times when you all, because you're human, you're not going to know what to say to me. And so I want to give you all a gift. And so he gave us the Psalms. There's 150 of them, and they're designed for the people of God to pray them at certain times in their life. And so people throughout history have prayed these words. We join with people for 2,000 years and even 1,500 years before that where we pray these things together to God. There's 150 of them, and one-third are psalms of lament. A third of our prayers are meant for moments of pain and sorrow and suffering. One-third. And so I want to remind you, lament is just a turning to God. You turn to God, not from him, and you cry out. In your sorrow and your suffering, it's turning to God and asking him to do something about the evil. And it's turning to God saying, this is just, this is too much. The next wave is going to take me under. This is, this is too much. Lament is just turning to God and saying, I'm hurting. One third. One third are like that Psalm 13 I just read to you. Why am I suffering? Look at me in my affliction. How much longer? A third. It's almost as if God knew in his infinite mercy and kindness that the people would need a language for sorrow and suffering they would endure. This is almost as if he knew, hey, I know there are going to be times when what you go through is going to knock the breath out of you, and so I've got to give you the words to say. It's like he knew the cost of Genesis 3 and the rebellion of humanity, and he knew what that would mean for us, and he didn't leave us without words. He gave them to us, and a third of these prayers are that. So I want to remind you what I reminded everybody at that funeral. Lament is not the language of the faithless. It's the language of the faithful. Crying out to God saying, I'm hurting, I'm in pain, I'm overwhelmed, I'm forlorn. Those are not the words of the faithless. They have always been the words of the faithful. When you cry out to God in your tears and your anguish, it's a testimony that you agree with God that things are not as they should be. It's an agreement with God that death is an enemy. It's an agreement with God that your loved one was infinitely valuable, that the life that you care about was infinitely valuable. And the cost of deep abiding love is often intense grief and sorrow. Do you want to know how much you love someone? Look at how you grieve when harm comes their way. It'll show you the cost of deep abiding love is often intense grief and lament. Parents, you get this well. Aunts and uncles, you get this well. Our tears are a testimony that those we lose were deeply loved. And it's a testimony that we are the people of God when we turn to him in our sorrow and suffering. I read Psalm 13 to you earlier. And I got to be honest with you all, when I was 13, Exodus, pretty neat. Leviticus. Numbers was a lot. 
I kept going. But you know what happened when I got to the Psalms? I got, like, really excited. Because, like, Psalm 1 so easy. It's like, blessed is the man that walks not in the council of the wicked. I'm like, I get this. I love poetry. This is great. This is going to be pretty language. I'm going to fly through these. But you know what would happen is I would get to the Psalms of Lament, and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, David is so whiny. What a baby. Suck it up, man. It can't be that bad. I mean, you didn't have indoor plumbing, but come on. You were a king for crying out loud. They had servants. I read somewhere you had concubines. I don't know fully what that means at 13 and 14. I did. I was like, what, what are you complaining about? But you know what that just reveals to me? <laughs> it reveals to me that I didn't quite know yet at 13 what I now know at 37. At 37, I understand David saying, would you look at me? Because it sometimes feels as if God's face is somewhere else. Like at 37, I know what it means to say, gosh, I, I am so sad. I don't know how I'm going to take my next breath because every one of these breaths feels like work. And you all get this. And if you don't get this, God bless you. I hope you never do. I hope you go to your grave thinking David is whiny. But for those of us who've experienced sorrow and suffering, we know when David says, how long? I remember asking my counselor, am I going to be sad forever? And you know, a counselor, she said, how does that make you feel? And I said, I pay you for this? No, I'm kidding. I love counselors. I, I understand Psalm 13 now. Many of you in this room understand Psalm 13. And I'm so grateful that we worship a God that lets me turn to him in my anguish and lament in such vivid and honest ways. I thought David was being unfaithful and whiny. And now at 37, I realize it's the only way to be faithful in those moments. Lament is the only way to be faithful in these moments. You're not entitled to just this part of the wedge. You're allowed to feel all these things. And when you turn to God and you bring them to him and say, I'm hurting here, it's the language of the faithful. It always has been. Lament is not the language of the faithless. It's the language of the faithful. But what's so interesting about the book of Psalms is that the laments are mostly at the beginning. I told you one-third of the book are laments. They're mostly clustered in the beginning of the book. By the end of the book, if you're looking for a happy psalm, flip to the back. Because at the end of the book of Psalms is where God has his people place the Psalms of Ascent, which is the psalms they sing when they're going up to Jerusalem a couple times a year to be at a festival, and they're fun, and they're beautiful, and they're exciting, and they're communal. They're psalms of trust. You have been good to us all the days of our life. We will praise you evermore. And then they end in these psalms of praise. The last five psalms in the book of Psalms all begin and end with, Hallelujah, hallelujah, which means praise be to God. The last five, but praise be to God, praise be to God. How can a people who have lamented so deeply, how can the people who cry out, where are you, be the same people that will say, but praise be to God? It's because lament is born out of faith and not understanding. We do not have to have understanding to have faith. In fact, understanding has become an idol for modern Christians. We think we have to know it all in order to trust a God who we cannot know fully. Faith is not about understanding. Faith is about trust. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand why I'm going through this. I would not have written it this way, and yet I will follow you all the days of my life, and yet I trust you. What I said at my friend's funeral was that lament allows us to say we want Hayden in the arms of his parents. We think it's wrong that Hayden isn't in the arms of his parents. And at the same time, because we are people of faith, 
we can hold on to hope that he is face-to-face with his parent Savior. We can feel these two things at the same time. Lament allows us to say Hayden should be in the arms of his parents, but hope and faith allow us to say if he's going to be anywhere else, though, praise God, he's in the arms of his Savior. And we don't have to pick and choose. And for so long, we've told people, look, you've got to feel this one. This is the most faithful response. It's okay. Hayden's with Jesus. And what I wanted to remind them and remind everyone in that room and remind you all is you don't have to pick and choose. That what it means to be human is to be able to hold these two things in tension. Lament is predicated on faith. It's not unfaithful to wish Hayden were with his parents. To cry out to God, why did this happen? It's why people in the Christian faith, if you've been around saints who have really suffered, they're the people that wake up and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that boggles my mind. Like when I became a women's minister, I was 27 and so stupid. And they gave me the biggest women's ministry in Dallas. I felt like somebody handed the keys to a Lamborghini at 14 and said, don't wreck it. And I was like, we'll see what happens. Let's open her up. And very quickly I learned just how stupid I was. And so you know what I did? I just started hanging out with people three times my age. I could do that at 27 now. Yeah, I can't do that at 37. It's a math joke, guys. I would get around widowers, get around people who had lost children, people who had been abandoned by those who made covenants to them. And they were the women that would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because lament is the language of the faithful people who are hurting can still have hope, though, that their loved ones are with Christ. Because lament is the language of the faithful, they can hold on to lament, they can cry out to God in anguish at the same time that they can hope for better days. They can hold on to lament and the pain and the anguish while still saying that the Lord draws near the brokenhearted. They can say, I have lost so much, and yet I trust that the Lord will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And they can feel those both at the same time. I chose Psalm 13 because it starts, I trust in your faithfulness at the same time. How can the people of God lament and rage against the enemies of death and yet hold out hope and faith that better days are ahead? It's because of what our great theologian Daniel the Tiger already told us. Sometimes you can feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay. And I will remind you, it's more than okay. It's what it means to be human. To be truly human means you can hold sorrow and happiness, joy and envy. You can do these things at the same time. And so I want to remind you, it's okay to love your new spouse while grieving the loss of your first one who passed away. It's okay to love your kids so much that you can't even understand how your heart got ripped out of your chest and they're in these little humans, and yet, man, they disappoint you, right? You're like, oh, I created that? I love that. At the same time, it's okay to be excited about marriage while grieving the life you're going to leave behind. It's okay to feel two things at the same time. In fact, it's what it means to be human. So what's my so what? You know what's funny about that pastor asking me, did I learn this truth from a book? Um, because the reality is, like, one of my absolute favorite books in the whole world, top five books, if you've, if you've been through hard things, there's a chance I've probably given you the book. It's called Hind's Feet on High Places, and it's an allegory. It's a story about a woman who is, her name is Much Afraid. 
and she wants to climb the mountain to get to the good shepherd, um, but she's having a hard time climbing it. She's been through a lot of hard things, and she's having a hard time climbing it because she hasn't yet had her feet transformed to give her the hind's feet, like, the, like deer have hind's feet, to get to the high places. It's a reference from the prophets. So she keeps falling, and she keeps falling, and she has these two companions that keep, they stick out their hands over and over again. They say, do you want our help? And she says, no, 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 over and over again. And she finally realizes, I really want to experience the joy of the Good Shepherd. I will not get there without my two companions here. And so in the most powerful moment, I think, in the book, she finally accepts their hands, and you finally learn their names. You didn't know this whole time who they were. And you learn their names are sorrow and suffering. And she describes the excruciating pain of having to take their hands, but yet they strengthen her to arrive to be with the Good Shepherd, to experience the joy and the love that she's been after this whole time. (laughs) And I read that book years ago. I love that book. I knew what it meant to experience sorrow and suffering to take me to the Good Shepherd. And then I lost my sister. And I had this moment the other day when I realized, he was like, did a book help you? And I was like, you know, it's funny. My favorite book taught me this lesson, but it just taught me it up here. I I didn't know it until I went through my own sorrow and suffering and had to take their hands. And I had this moment with the Lord. I was like, how dare you make me experience my favorite book? That's ridiculous. Books are great. Often, though, they're just pointing to what we experience. They're not teaching us something new. I learned what it means to be deeply sad about my sister and yet at the same time have this unwavering belief in the goodness of God. And I could not have experienced those at the same time had God not taught me that and shown me that and gave me the hands of sorrow and suffering. I learned it by having the wind knocked out of me and looking at God and saying, but I trust you. So what's my big so what? Daniel the tiger is not teaching us something we didn't know. He's just bringing compassion and understanding to what we experience as humans. And it's so sad to me that it's only the five-year-olds that are getting this message. I think we should all be tuning into PBS more. I don't even know how you get that channel. I'll be real with y'all. But we need a renaissance of the Mr. Rogers in our life, right? But the reality is Daniel the tiger is just ripping off God. That's why we're doing the series. All great art ultimately borrows from God. God has always received the complexity of humanity. God the Father was the one who received the prayers of the people, like Psalm 13, where they rage and yet trust. Jesus is the one who accepts the answer, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he says, that's enough, right? God the Holy Spirit is the one we come to and we go, I need something. I don't know what I need. And he says, I got you. I will pray in words that you do not yet have. It's Jesus who is in the garden of Gethsemane who says, I am despairing, yet not my will, but your will be done. And wouldn't you know, he quotes a psalm of lament in that moment, Psalm 22. The God-man shows us what it means to feel two things at the same time. So maybe you're thinking, I'm going to tell you to feel your feelings. Kind of. I want to give a disclaimer. Look, the reality is, is our feelings are sometimes not what they should be. And I'll be the first to tell you, if you come to me and go, I'm feeling two things at the same time. I feel like my husband's great, but so is this other man. I'm going to go, oh, you need to crucify that, right? Or there are feelings or invasive thoughts that come into our head that I would say, I, I don't think that's faithfulness to entertain that. There are certain feelings, right? You're like, you know, I kind of love this person, but I want to murder them. And I'd go, hey, you might want to crucify the murderous rage. 
as is fitting unto the Lord. I'm not saying every feeling that comes into your, your mind and your body is something you need to entertain. I, I'm not telling you that. And if you cannot discern the difference, I mean this. You need to get help. And I don't mean this like, I mean this is what it means to grow up in the Lord, is to understand that not every feeling we're supposed to act upon, not every thought we're meant to entertain, we are to crucify all our things unto what is fitting to the Lord. But... Many of you have probably been in spaces where you've been told the most faithful Christians only experience that one wedge of the feeling circle, which is happiness and jubilee and triumph. And we need to express a faith, though, if we're going to be truly human, that allows us to experience the other side, the sorrow and the suffering, the uncertainty, the dread, the forlornness. Someday I'm going to look up that word. Instead of pretending like we don't feel those things and washing over them and quickly running to glory... Sometimes what faithfulness is, is we turn to God in those moments. And we say, I need you. We, we turn to God in those moments and say, I need you to rescue me, to comfort me, to care for me. Sometimes you feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay, because that, that negative feeling, whatever we want to call that, maybe that's the invitation to grab a hold of those hands of sorrow and suffering and allow them to take you to the place of the deeper intimacy and deeper joy and deeper love that awaits you when you get to the Good Shepherd. The most faithful saints I know will tell you that it is in this moment when they're holding these two things, when they allow themselves to lament and to be sorrowful and to suffer, has been their moments of greatest intimacy with the Lord. That's a mystery too great for us. But I think it's what it means to be truly human and to be truly trusting that when you turn to God in those moments, he will meet you in those moments. So my so what is this, is don't squash those feelings. Take them to God. Allow him to meet you in those moments of your greatest need. Allow his helpmates of sorrow and suffering to be the way that God brings you to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that you sent your son to show us what it means to be fully human, and that as Jesus did that, even he felt two things at the same time. Would you give my friends wisdom and discernment to know what feelings they should allow themselves to feel? But more than that, Lord, would you allow, when we come up against hard things and pain and discomfort, that we would not run quickly to joy and happiness, but instead would sit in them and bring them to you and allow them to be invitations to greater intimacy. Would you, would you use our difficulty and our pain and our hard years to grow us to be greater lovers of you, lovers of ourselves, and lovers of others. Bless my friends this morning, Lord. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And God's people said,